So, we're going to start with a very horrible scenario. But imagine, imagine it with me. Um, so, you've been kidnapped as a child. And for most of your life, you've grown up in a cellar. You've not seen the outside, you've been ripped away from your family, ripped away from all the other kids your age, and you've been cruelly kept as a slave for some evil bloke for years and years and years. You used to hope someone was coming for you. You used to hope there'd be someone to come and rescue you. But it's been so long you've given up hope. But one day, while your owner is out, a letter comes under the door. You open it and it says... We know you need help. A man will be coming soon for you. Now that would be a burst of anticipation, excitement, and it would grip you, that message. And then you'd be encouraged because two days later, another letter. The man is still coming, just wait. He'll come dressed as a gas man. That's his little ploy to get in. Then another two days later, the man's name is Jeff. Look out for him. When you hear him shout for help, He'll save you. He's a family friend you can trust in. He's been set aside and trained for getting you out of there. So all your hope is put on this guy, isn't it? Suddenly, from having no hope, you've got hope. You've been promised this person who can come and rescue you. And you believe it. And that feeling, that idea is the idea of Messiah. That promised hope that's coming, eagerly awaiting this guy to come. That's what the Messiah was to the Jews. Promised human who'd been set apart by God, ready for the task of deliverance, of saving. Like us in our cellar with letters, God has been sending prophets to the Jews, been sending prophets to the Jews saying, the Messiah's coming. He's told them what he's like, the serpent crusher, the shepherd, the David figure, the cornerstone, the deliverer. He's going to be from Galilee. He's going to be the line of David. They've got these letters We've got these letters coming through. Um, can we keep him over there? I can see Lan getting distracted straight away. Just <laughs> slightly away from the front, it's all right. Um, I know that's a hard task, Charles. <laughs> uh, so this man will save them. He'll kill the captors. He'll kill Jeff. And he'll pull them out of prison and bring them into relationship with God. So that's the figure they're waiting for. That's the, the feeling, the anticipation the Jews have felt. And so this is why the book of John was written, uh, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Your version might say Christ. Christ, Christos, is just the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And they mean anointed one. Um, referring to the Messiah figure of the Old Testament. And by anointed, remember when we did Samuel, you had um, oil was put on the king's head before they took, took over their role. And so in essentially anointing is like the setting aside of one person for a task. And so this Messiah had been set apart by God before it happened for delivering his people. And over time, Christ and Messiah became more than just like a descriptor of his job, but they became... A title like, so Jesus Christ is how we know him. A bit like Queen Elizabeth. Her title's almost inextricably attached to her, isn't it? It's not just a job role, it's, it's her. And so 
Because Jesus was such a mind-blowing Messiah, breaking what they expected even, being even more brilliant, um, the idea Messiah became inseparable from Jesus himself. Um, And just looking at the text, it's key when reading a book of the Bible, just for yourself, but also in preaching, to understand why did the author write this book? What was he trying to do? And John is lovely because he's told us, he's given us two verses telling us exactly why he wrote it, which is... Very nice for a preacher. Um, and it's what we're going to be preaching on through church and at church on the moor. Hopefully we'll get through the whole book. And the question to ask is, why has John written it? So that you, the reader, the listener, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And we'll go through the book of John and we'll see constantly John making this clear. He's going to be referring back to Old Testament prophecies. This is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy. And so if you come to the Bible with the question in your head, to John, sorry, is this man the promised Messiah? Is he the one that's going to bring salvation and rescue? And this is what we want the guys who come here to ask. Is this the guy who can rescue me? Is this the guy that can bring hope? Is this the Messiah to me? Is he my Messiah? Is he my saviour? I need hope. And that's what they're hopefully going to be asking. And hopefully it'll be answered, John will answer it for them. So the other thing he says about him being the Messiah, so it may believe Jesus is the Messiah, also the Son of God afterwards. So two things about Jesus. He is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. That's what John's going to be trying to get across the whole book. Um, now this truth of Jesus being the Son of God is less clearly set out in the Old Testament. The Messiah figures set out all the time what he's going to be like. But the fact that the Son of God would be coming is a little bit more hidden. But since Jesus has been revealed and we've got the New Testament and all the teachings, we can look back and see that actually that idea of Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah being the Son of God, is throughout the Old Testament as well. Um, For example, Psalm 2, we looked at where the future ultimate ruler is described as the Son of Yahweh. Or how in Ezekiel, when God says... Um, the Messiah will be the only shepherd over them. This man will be a shepherd over them. Three chapters earlier, God said he will be the shepherd and he will rescue his people. Well, which is it? Is God going to rescue them or is the Messiah going to rescue them? Well, it's both, isn't it? The Messiah is God. Um, so looking back, you can see these things. And John is going to uniquely emphasise this aspect of Jesus. And emphasise the closeness of the Father and the Son all the way through the book. Um, So we'll see that. And so that's going to come out. So then I guess if that's why he's doing it, how exactly does he achieve his goal to show that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God? And it's kind of in the bit before verse 30. Um, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. So John has chosen miracles, signs. He's chosen all the narrative around those signs. He's told the stories and the teaching around those signs to do this task. So he's purposely chosen the different miracles that we see um, for this end. And this little bit follows the miracle. This comes straight after Jesus' resurrection. Just flick with your eyes if you've got it in front of you. The resurrection has just happened. He's appeared to the disciples 
And this is what Jesus' identity hangs on. This is proving that he is the Messiah. He is the son of God, like he said he was. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything he said is a load of crap. Our faith is totally pointless. If Jesus is still dead, 2,000 years of Christianity have been following no Christ at all. But with this sign of resurrection, John is saying, no, no, this is the Messiah. This is the one who has power. Everything he says is true. No bigger sign of power and of God sending us can be better than rising from the dead. Only God has power over the dead, right? And John is, if John's statement for this book is so evangelistic, isn't he? He wants people to believe in Jesus, have life in his name. And he's chosen the resurrection to be that almost principal miracle to show that. And I think for us, we've got to realise it's vital in evangelism to, to talk about the resurrection as it was for John. That's why he's done this. So hopefully we're going to have lots of people we'll talk to, welcome into our homes and befriend over the next years. And we need to remember that the resurrection is key. Um, so a little overview, things you might say. Because I'll say, oh, how do I know it happened? Well, we can know it's true because the Romans killed people always. He was definitely dead. The Romans don't make mistakes like that. He was dead. After he died, there was every outside pressure to provide his dead body from the Jews and the Romans. If they could show that Jesus was dead, they'd have won their arguments every single time. But they couldn't because there was no body. There were loads of eyewitnesses he appeared to. In the text before and after here, he appears to loads of eyewitnesses, not just one guy or some vision, loads of people. And then those eyewitnesses were willing to die for the fact that he'd been resurrected. And that is such a proof. Uh, A terrorist bomber might die for a faith that happened lots of years ago, a God he's never met. But these guys were dying for a human being that had breakfast with four months ago. If he hadn't risen from the dead, they wouldn't be dying for it, would they? They'd know. And all this stuff in John and Matthew and Mark and Luke was written down within the lifetime of all those eyewitnesses. So if it was all lies and rubbish, it wouldn't have ever gained any traction. But in fact, during the eyewitnesses' lifetimes, they grew really popular and were spread around. And no one was going, that didn't happen, I was there. They said, no, no, I saw that happen. That's so true. That's what was happening. So the resurrection is something we need to be um, thinking about as saying, no, no, you can believe in Jesus because he rose from the dead. So John's writing that people might believe for the first time. And it's what we're, it's what we're hoping will happen, right, on these Sundays, that people will come hear the word, repent and believe in Christ. So it feels like a good book to do. Um, but it's also for us. You could read uh, verse 31 quite easily if you're translating it. But these are written so that you may believe better that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, John is actually a very complex book and it's not just for non-believers, but it's for believers too. And we need these information about Jesus and the gospel taken from our brains and pressed into our hearts Even though we might know a lot of stuff, we need it pressed into our hearts. Um, So John's going to take us on an incredible journey. He's going to teach us theology. He's going to show us um, 
a proper eyeful of the glorious Jesus. And we need this. A lot of Christian learning and discipleship is not learning new facts, but better understanding, deeper understanding those facts, letting them mean something. It's like an insecure wife. This is not a comment about you, Charles. Her husband says he loves her and values her. But even though she kind of believes it, it doesn't change her insecurities. You know, they're newly married. She still worries about, is he out with other women? She still feels not good enough. She feels she has so many weaknesses. How can, how can he mean that? How can he value me when all these other women are so much better than me? And I keep failing and forgetting and whatever else. Well, she's got the head knowledge that he loves and values her, but she doesn't, it's not in her heart. She's not believing it. But in time, she does start to believe it more and more as he shows her by caring for her, by not going after other women, by earning money for the family, by standing up for her when people slag her off, by comforting her when life goes wrong, giving her little gifts maybe, not me, and wanting her to grow. All the while, he's doing all these little things. He's telling her, I love you. I value you. You are my wife and I love you. As she listens and sees his actions, she gets it more and more. It's not just a fact she kind of believes. It's something she really deeply believes And it changes how she lives. It changes how she feels. She doesn't have to worry so much. She feels more secure in her marriage. She can relax. She can um, rest in it. And it's the same for us. As we sit and listen to Jesus' words in John and see Jesus' actions, we will get it more and more. The head knowledge will be pressed into our hearts. Our belief will be stronger. And like the wife, we'll be less insecure in our belief. We'll rest in him. We'll be more reliant on Jesus. Because we can hear and experience everything he is and everything he does for us. So basically, we're going to be able to see Jesus more fully. And that's going to change us. So it's exciting for us as well. Um, Look at the last part of verse 31. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The outcome of belief is life. Belief in the Messiah gives life. Without it, we're dead. We're stuck in the cage with our kidnapper till the day we die. Unless Jesus comes in and saves us, unless we shout out his name, unless we believe that Jesus is this promised saviour, the son of God, we'll be dead. But if we shout out and believe, we'll have life. And this is the good news. It is not just the good news, it's the most incredible news in all the world. Just believe that Jesus is your saviour, your God. And the sins are gone, the weight is lifted, the Holy Spirit enters and you have life. We're through the gate of the Garden of Eden, we're chomping on the apples of the tree of life, we're drinking the water out of the river of life. We've got all this, we have life and it's life eternal in Jesus and it's a gift that we don't deserve and it's the best news in the world. And the first thing to do with that is to just worship God for it. Pray. It's, it is the best thing ever. We'll sing about amazing grace in a second. It is amazing grace. It is the best gift we could ever have received. And we need to be eternally grateful. And primarily, we respond. But of course, there's other people in cellars like we used to be. 
people driving the cars, going to the bookies, getting ready to go to the pub, just driving around, living their lives, looking after the kids. And they're in the cellars and we need to tell them the good news. We have it. We've been, we have such an amazing gift. And the creator of the universe, who anointed and set apart his son to come and rescue them as well. God's mission explained in this book is to give life to sinners through Jesus. John's mission, when he wrote the book of John, was to write this book so people might believe that Jesus is the saviour and gain life. Our mission continues exactly the same thing, to share the good news with the people of this town. They might believe that Jesus is their rescuer and therefore gain life. An example is put just before our passage. Thomas, if you just flip up in your Bibles, you'll see Thomas, um, and you probably know the story, doesn't, the other disciples see Jesus risen. He doesn't believe. He's, he's a disbeliever. He's an unbeliever. He doesn't care about Jesus. He, doesn't, he, he can't. No one can rise from the dead. He's not the Messiah. But then he sees Jesus. Verse 28. Thomas answered him. What's his response? My Lord and my God. Can you imagine in the next few weeks or years, people in this room, in our houses, saying those words? Going from total disbelief like Thomas to saying, my Lord and my God. It's meeting the risen Jesus. And it's not a far off thing. But this might happen through the work we do in this church, through God working through us. Unbelievers might cry out, my Lord and my God. It is the most exciting vision we could have. At the moment, they probably think, all religion is a load of crap. They probably think it's a load of rubbish, it's pointless, or they don't even think about it. Maybe they don't even think about it. Or maybe they have horrible feelings about it. But we know him and we get to talk about him and show him through word and song and preaching and fellowship, hospitality. We can show them Jesus so they can respond, my Lord and my God. So we have so much good news to put in front of people. Life eternal, hope that they never dreamed of, relationship with their creator. So let's pray that they would taste and see the life-giving reality of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. I'll pray. And we're going to time of prayer, open prayer. Um, and, yeah. Lord Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are seated in the heavens. We praise you that you would save anyone. And we thank you that you saved us. We thank you that you knew we were lost and knew we needed a Messiah. And you provided the Messiah of Messiahs, Jesus Christ, who comforts and loves and welcomes while we were still sinners. Father, we just praise you for this gospel that we have. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.